Hey, welcome to the Frotter H Reading Podcast. I am Frotter H. In this podcast recording, when and wherever you are hearing it, I'll be reading to you William Butler Yeats' Anima Mundi. This text from 1917 is in 22 sections, which lets us know immediately that Yeats is referring to the Kabbalistic Tree of Life and the tarot correspondences that he learned in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. He combines ideas about goetic evocation with ideas about spiritism, the origins of artistic inspiration, and something like we might call today a collective unconscious. I hope you find it rewarding. My reading will include several mispronunciations. Anima Mundi, Section 1 I have always sought to bring my mind close to the mind of Indian and Japanese poets, old women in Connacht, mediums in Soho, lay brothers whom I imagine dreaming in some medieval monastery the dreams of their village, learned authors who refer all to antiquity, to immerse it in the general mind, where that mind is scarce separable from what we have begun to call the subconscious, to liberate it from all that comes of councils and committees, from the world as it is seen from universities or from populous towns, and that I might so believe, I have murmured evocations and frequented mediums, delighted in all that displayed great problems through sensuous images or exciting phrases accepting from abstract schools but a few technical words that are so old they seem but broken architraves fallen amid bramble and grass, and have put myself to school, where all things are seen attenedo tacite per amica silentia lunae. I will pause here to translate that Latin and have put myself to school where all things are seen from tenedos through the friendly silence of the peaceful moon. At one time, I thought to prove my conclusions by quoting from diaries where I have recorded certain strange events the moment they happened, but now I've changed my mind. I will but say, like the Arab boy that became vizier, O brother, I have taken stock in the desert sand and of the sayings of antiquity. Section 2 There is a letter of Goethe, though I cannot remember where, that explains evocation, though he was but thinking of literature. He described some friend who had complained of literary sterility as too intelligent, One must allow the images to form with all their associations before one criticizes. Quote, if one is too critical too soon, he wrote, they will not form at all. End quote. If you suspend the critical faculty, I have discovered, 
either as the result of training or, if you have the gift, by passing into a slight trance, images pass rapidly before you. If you can suspend also desire and let them form at their own will, your absorption becomes more complete and they are more clear in color, more precise in articulation, and you and they begin to move in the midst of what seems a powerful light. But the images pass before you linked by certain associations, and indeed, in the first instance, you have called them up by their association with traditional forms and sounds. You have discovered how, if you can but suspend will and intellect, to bring up from the, quote, subconscious, end quote, anything you already possess a fragment of. Those who follow the old rule keep their bodies still and their minds awake and clear, dreading especially any confusion between the images of the mind and the objects of sense. They seek to become, as it were, polished mirrors. I had no natural gift for this clear quiet, as I soon discovered, for my mind is abnormally restless, and I was seldom delighted by that sudden luminous definition of form which makes one understand almost in spite of oneself that one is not merely imagining. I therefore invented a new process. I had found that after evocation, my sleep became at moments full of light and form, all that I had failed to find while awake, and I elaborated a symbolism of natural objects that I might give myself dreams during sleep, or rather visions, for they had none of the confusion of dreams, by laying upon my pillow or beside my bed certain flowers or leaves. Even today, after twenty years, the exaltations and the messages that came to me from bits of hawthorn or some other plant seem, of all moments of my life, the happiest and the wisest. After a time, because the because after a time because the novelty wearing off, this symbol lost its power, or because my work at the Irish theatre became too exciting, my sleep lost its responsiveness. I had fellow scholars, and now it was I, and now they, who made some discovery. Before the mind's eye, whether in sleep or waking, came images that one was to discover presently in some book one had never read, and after looking in vain for explanation to the current theory of forgotten personal memory, I came to believe in a great memory, passing on from generation to generation. But that was not enough. For these images showed intention and choice. They had a relation to what one knew, and yet were an extension of one's knowledge. If no mind was there, why should I suddenly come upon salt and antinomy, upon the liquefaction of the gold, as if they were under, as they were understood by the alchemists, or upon some detail of cabalistic symbolism verified at last by a learned scholar from his never-published manuscripts, and who can have put together so ingeniously, working by some law of association, and yet with clear intention and personal application, certain mythological images? They had shown themselves to several minds, a fragment at a time, and had only shown their meaning when the puzzle picture had been put together. 
The thought was again and again before me that this study had created a contact or mingling with minds who had followed a like study in some other age, and that these minds still saw and thought and chose. Our daily thought was certainly but the line of foam at the shallow edge of a vast luminous sea. Henry Moore's Anima Mundi Wordsworth's immortal sea which brought us hither, and near whose edge the children sport, and in that sea there were some who swam or sailed, explorers who perhaps knew all its shores. Section 3 I had always to compel myself to fix the imagination upon the minds behind the personifications, and yet the personifications were themselves living and vivid. The minds that swayed these seemingly fluid images had doubtless form, and those images themselves seemed, as it were, mirrored in a living substance whose form is but change of form. From tradition and perception, one's thought of one's own life as symbolized by earth, the place of heterogeneous things, the images mirrored in water, and the images themselves one could divine but as air, and beyond it all there were, I felt confident, certain aims and governing loves, the fire that makes all simple. Yet the images themselves were fourfold, and one judged their meaning in part from the predominance of one out of the four elements, or that of the fifth element, the veil hiding the other four, a bird born out of the fire. Section 4 We longed to know something, even if it were but the family and Christian names of those minds that we could divine, and yet that remained always as it seemed impersonal. The sense of contact came perhaps but two or three times with clearness and certainty, but it left among all to whom it came some trace, a sudden silence, as it were, in the midst of thought, or perhaps at moments of crisis, a faint voice. Were our masters right when they declared so solidly that we should be content to know these presences that seemed friendly and near, but as, quote, the phantom, end quote, in Coleridge's poem, and to think of them perhaps as having, as St. Thomas says, entered upon the eternal possession of themselves in one single moment. All look and likeness caught from earth, all accident of kin and birth has passed away. There was no trace of aught on that illumined face, upraised beneath the rifted stone, but of one spirit all her own. She, she herself and only she, shone through her body visibly. Section 5 One night I heard a voice that said, quote, The love of God for every human soul is infinite, for every human soul is unique, no other can satisfy the same need in God. End quote. Our masters had not denied that personality outlives the body, or even that its rougher shape may cling to us a while after death, but only that we should seek it in those who are dead. Yet, 
when I went among the country people, I found that they sought and found the old fragilities, infirmities, physiognomies that living stirred affection. The spittle knowledgeable man, who had his knowledge from his sister's ghost, noticed every Halloween when he met her at the end of the garden that her hair was grayer that she had perhaps to exhaust her allotted years in the neighborhood of her home, having died before her time? Because no authority seemed greater than that of this knowledge running backward to, be the, to the beginning of the world, I began that study of spiritism, so despised by Stanislaus de Gaeta, the one eloquent learned scholar who has written of magic in our generation. Section 6. I know much that I could never have known had I not learnt to consider in the afterlife what there is here is rough and disjointed. Not have I found that the mediums in Connacht and Soho have anything I cannot find some light on in Henry Moore, who was called during his life the holiest man now walking on the earth. All souls have a vehicle or body, and when one has said that with more and the platonists one has and when one has said that with more and the platonists one has escaped from the abstract schools who seek always the power of some church or institution and found oneself with great poetry and superstition which is but popular poetry in a pleasant dangerous world beauty is indeed but bodily but bodily life in some ideal condition Beauty is indeed but bodily life in some ideal condition. The vehicle of the human soul is what used to be called the animal spirits. And Henry Moore quotes from Hippocrates this sentence, quote, The mind of man is not nourished from meats and drinks from the belly, but by a clear, luminous substance that redounds by separation from the blood. End quote. These animal spirits fill up all parts of the body and make up the body of air, as certain writers of the 17th century have called it. The soul has a plastic power and can, after death or during life, should the vehicle leave the body for a while, mold it to any shape it will by an act of imagination, though the more unlike to the habitual that shape is, the greater the effort. To living and dead alike, the purity and abundance of the animal spirits are a chief power. The soul can mold from these an apparition clothed as if in life, and make it visible by showing it to our mind's eye, or by building into its substance certain particles drawn from the body of a medium till it is as visible and tangible as any other object. To help that building, the ancients offered sheaves of corn, fragrant gum, and the odor of fruit and flowers, and the blood of victims. The half-materialized vehicle slowly exudes from the skin in dull luminous drops or condenses from a luminous cloud, the light fading as weight and density increase. The witch, going beyond the medium, offered to the slowly animating phantom certain drops of her blood. 
The vehicle, once separate from the living man or woman, may be molded by the souls of others as readily as by its own soul, and even it seems by the souls of the living. It becomes a part, for a while, of that stream of images which I have compared to reflections upon water. But how does it follow that souls who have never handled the modeling tool nor the brush make perfect images? Those materializations who imprint their powerful faces upon paraffin wax, leaving their sculpture that would have taken a good artist making and imagining many hours. How did it follow that an ignorant woman could, as Henry Moore believed, project her vehicle in so good a likeness of a hare that horse and hound and huntsman followed with the bugle blowing? Is it not the problem the same as one of those finely articulated scenes and patterns that come out of the dark, seemingly completed in the winking of an eye as we are lying half asleep, and of all those elaborate images that drift in moments of inspiration or evocation before the mind's eye? Our animal spirits or vehicles are but, as it were, a condensation of the vehicle of anima mundi, and to give substance to its images in the faint materialization of our common thought, or more grossly, when a ghost is our visitor, it should be no great feat, once those images have dipped into our vehicle to take their portraits in the photographic camera. Henry Moore will have it that a hen, scared by a hawk, when the cock is treading, hatches out a hawk-headed chicken. I am no stickler for the fact." Because before the soul of the unborn bird could give the shape, quote, the deeply impassioned fancy of the mother, end quote, called from the general cistern of form a competing image. Quote, the soul of the world, he runs on, interposes and insinuates into all generations of things while the matter is fluid and yielding, which would induce a man to believe that she may not stand idle in the transformation of the of the vehicle of the demons, but assist the fancies and desires, and so help to clothe them, and to utter them according to their own pleasure. Or it may be sometimes against their wills, as the unwieldiness of the mother's fancy forces upon her a monstrous birth." Though images appear to flow and drift, it may be that we but change in our relation to them, now losing, now finding with the shifting of our minds, and certainly Henry Moore speaks by the book in claiming that those images may be hard to the right touch as, quote, pillars of crystal, end quote, and as solidly colored as our own to the right eyes. Shelley, a good Platonist, seems in his earliest work to set this general soul in the place of God, an opinion one may find from Moore's friend Cudworth, now affirmed, now combated by classic authority. But Moore would steady us with a definition. The general soul, as apart from its vehicle, is, quote, a substance incorporeal but without sense, an animate version, pervading the whole matter of the universe, and exercising a plastic power therein according to the sundry predispositions and occasions in the parts it works upon, raising such phenomena in the world by directing the parts of the matter and their motion as cannot be resolved into mere mechanical powers. End quote. 
I must assume that since an animadversion, animadversion, perception and direction are always faculties of the individual soul, and that, as Blake said, quote, God only acts or is in existing beings or men, end quote. Section 7. The old theological conception of the individual soul as bodiless or abstract led to what Henry Moore calls contradictory debate as to how many angels could dance, booted and spurred upon the point of a needle, and made it possible for rationalist physiology to persuade us that our thought has no corporeal existence but in the molecules of the brain. Shelley was of the opinion that the thoughts which are called real or external objects differed but in regularity of occurrence from hallucinations, dreams, and ideas of madmen, and noticed that he had dreamed, therefore lessening the difference, three several times between intervals of two or more years, the same precise dream. If all our mental images are no less than apparitions, and I see no reason to distinguish, our forms existing in the general vehicle of anima mundi, and mirrored in our particular vehicle, many crooked things are made straight. I am persuaded that a logical process, or a series of related images, has body and period. And I think of anima mundi as a great pool or garden where it moves through its allotted growth like a great water plant or fragrantly branches in the air, indeed as Spencer's Garden of Adonis. There is the first seminary of all things that are born to live and die according to their kinds. The soul by changes of vital congruity, Moore says, draws, it, uh, draws to it a certain thought. And this thought draws by its association the sequence of many thoughts, endowing them with a life in the vehicle meted out according to the intensity of the first perception. A seed is set growing, and this growth may go on apart from the power, apart even from knowledge of the soul. If I wish to transfer a thought, I may think, let us say, of Cinderella's slipper, and my subject may see an old woman coming out of a chimney, or going to sleep, I may wish to wake at seven o'clock, and though I never think of it again, I shall wake up upon the instant. The thought has completed itself. Certain acts of logic, turns and knots in the stem, have been accomplished out of sight and out of reach, as it were. We are always starting these parasitic vegetables and letting them coil beyond our knowledge, and may become like that lady in Balzac who, after a life of sanctity, plans upon her deathbed to fly with her renounced lover. After death, a dream, a desire she had perhaps ceased to believe in, perhaps ceased almost to remember, must have recurred again and again with its anguish and its happiness. We can only refuse to start the wandering sequence, or, start if start it does, 
hold it in the intellectual light where time gallops, and so keep it from slipping down into the sluggish vehicle. The toil of the living is to free themselves from an endless sequence of objects, and that of the dead to free themselves from an endless sequence of thoughts. One sequence begets another, and these have power, because all of those things we do, not for their own sake, but for an imagined good. Section 8 Spiritism, whether of folklore or the seance room, the visions of Swedenborg, and the speculation of the Platonists and Japanese plays, will have it that we may see at certain roads and in certain houses old murders acted over again, and in certain fields dead huntsmen riding with horses and hound, or ancient armies fighting above bones or ashes. We carry to anima mundi our memory, and that memory is for a time our external world and all passionate moments recur again and again, for passion desires its own recurrence more than any event. And whatever there is of corresponding complacency or remorse is our beginning of our judgment. Nor do we remember only the events of life, for thoughts bred of longing and fear all those parasitic vegetables that have slipped through our fingers come again like a rope's end to smite us upon the face. And as Cornelius Agrippa writes, we may dream ourselves to be consumed in flame and persecuted by demons, and certain spirits have complained that they would be hard put it put to it to arouse those who died, believing they could not awake till a trumpet shrilled. A ghost in a Japanese play is set afire by a fantastic scruple, and though a Buddhist priest explains that the fire would go out of itself if the ghost but ceased to believe in it, it cannot cease to believe. Cornelius Agrippa called such, a dreaming, called such dreaming souls hobgoblins, and when Hamlet refused the bare bodkin because of what dreams may come, it was from no mere literary fancy. The soul can indeed, it appears, change these objects built about us by the memory, as it may change its shape. But the greater the change, the greater the effort, and the sooner the return to the habitual images. Doubtless, in either case, the effort is often beyond its power. Years ago, I was present when a woman consulted Madame Blavatsky for a friend who saw her newly dead husband nightly as a decaying corpse and smelt the odor of the grave. When he was dying, said Madame Blavatsky, he thought the grave was the end, and now that he is dead, cannot throw off that imagination. A Brahmin once told an actress friend of mine that he disliked acting because if a man died playing Hamlet, he would be Hamlet in eternity. Yet, after a time, the soul partly frees itself and becomes the shape-changer of the legends, and it can cast, like the medieval magician, what illusions it would. There is an Irish countryman in one of Lady Gregory's books who had eaten with the stranger on the road and some while later vomited to discover he had but eaten chopped-up grass. 
one thinks, too, of the spirits that show themselves in the images of wild creatures. 9. The dead, as the passionate necessity wears out, come into a measure of freedom and may turn the impulse of events started while living in some new direction, but they cannot originate except through the living. Then gradually they perceive, although they are still but living in their memories, harmonies, symbols, and patterns, as though all were being refashioned by an artist, and they are moved by emotions, sweet for no imagined good but in themselves, like those of children dancing in a ring. And I do not doubt that they make love in that union which Swedenborg has said is of the whole body, and seems from far off an incandescence. Hitherto, shade has communicated with shade in moments of common memory that recur like the figures of a dance in terror or in joy. But now they run together, like to like, and their covens and fleets have rhythm and pattern. This running together, and running of all to a center, and yet without loss of identity, has been prepared for by their exploration of their moral life, of its beneficiaries and its victims, and even of all its untrodden paths, and all their thoughts have molded the vehicle and become event and circumstance. Section 10. There are two realities, the terrestrial and the condition of fire. All power is from the terrestrial condition. For there, all opposites meet, and there only is the extreme choice possible. Full freedom. And there the heterogeneous is, and evil. For evil is the strain, one upon another, of opposites. But in the condition of fire is all music and all rest. Between is the condition of air where images have but a borrowed life, that of memory, or that reflected upon them when they symbolize colors and intensities of fire, the place of shades, who are in the whirl of those who are fading, and who cry like those amorous shades in the Japanese play. That we may acquire power, even in our faint substance, we will show forth even now, and though it be but in a dream, our form of repentance. After so many rhythmic beats, the soul must cease to desire its images, and can, as it were, close its eyes. When all sequence comes to an end, time comes to an end, and the soul puts on the rhythmic or spiritual body or luminous body, and contemplates all the events of its memory, and every possible impulse in an eternal possession of itself in one single moment. That condition is alone animate, all the rest is fantasy, and from thence come all the passions, and, some have held, the very heat of the body. Time drops in decay like a candle burnt out, and the mountains and woods have their day, have their day. What one, in the rout of the fire-born moods, has fallen away? Section 11 
The soul cannot have much knowledge till it has shaken off the habit of time and place. But till that hour, it must fix its attention upon whatever is near. Thinking of objects one after another as we run the eye or the finger over them. Its intellectual power cannot but increase and alter as its perceptions grow simultaneous. Yet even now we seem at moments to escape from time in what we call prevision, and from place when we see distant things in a dream and in concurrent dreams. A couple of years ago, while in meditation, my head seemed surrounded by a conventional sun's rays, and when I went to bed, I had a long dream of a woman with her hair on fire. I awoke and lit a candle, and discovered presently from the odor that in doing so I had set my own hair on fire. I dreamed very lately that I was writing a story, and at the same time I dreamed that I was one of the characters in that story, and seeking to touch the heart of some girl in defiance of the author's intention. And concurrently with all that, I was, as another self, trying to strike with the button of a foil a great china jar. The obscurity of the prophetic books of William Blake, which were composed in a state of vision, comes almost wholly from these concurrent dreams. Everybody has some story or some experience of the sudden knowledge in sleep or waking of some event, a misfortune for the most part, happening to some friend far off. Section 12. The dead, living in their memories, are, I am persuaded, the source of all that we call instinct, and it is their love and their desire, all unknowing, that make us drive beyond our reason or in defiance of our interest it may be, and it is the dream Martins that, all unknowing, are master masons to the living Martins, building about church windows their elaborate nests, and in their turn the phantoms are stung to a keener delight from a concord between their luminous pure vehicle and our strong senses. It were to reproach the power or the beneficence of God, to believe those children of Alexander who, who died wretchedly could not throw an urnful to the heap, nor Caesarian murdered in childhood whom Cleopatra bore to Caesar, nor the brief-lived younger Pericles Aspasia, born being so nobly born. Section 13 Because even the most wise dead can but arrange their memories as we arrange pieces upon a chessboard, and obey remembered words alone, he who would turn magician is forbidden by the Zoroastrian oracle to change barbarous words of invocation. Communication with anima mundi is through the association of thoughts or images or objects. And the famous dead, and those of whom but a faint memory lingers, can still, and it is for no other in than that, all unknowing, we value posthumous fame. Tread the corridor, and take the empty chair. A glove and a name can call their bearer. 
The shadows come to our elbow amid their old, undisturbed habitations, and materialization itself is easier, it may be, among walls or by rocks and trees that bring before their memory some moment of emotion while they had still animate bodies. Certainly, the mother returns from the grave, and with arms that may be visible and solid, for a hurried moment can comfort a neglected child or set the cradle rocking, and in all ages men have known and affirmed that when the soul is troubled, those that are a shade and a song. Live there and move like winds of light on dark and stormy air. Section 14 a while they live again, those passionate moments, not knowing they are dead. And then they know, and may awake, or half awake, to be our visitors. How is their dream changed, as time drops away, and their senses multiply? Does their stature alter? Do their eyes grow more brilliant? Certainly, the dreams stay the longer, the greater their passion when alive. Helen may still open her chamber door to Paris, or watch him from the wall, and know she is dreaming, but because nights and days are poignant, or the stars unreckonably bright. Surely, of the passionate dead, we can but cry in words Ben Jonson meant for none but Shakespeare, so rammed are they with life, they can but grow in life with being. Section 15 The inflowing from their mirrored life, who themselves receive it from the condition of fire, falls upon the winding path called the path of the serpent, and that inflowing coming alike to men and to animals is called natural. There is another inflow, which is not natural, but intellectual, and it is from the fire. And it descends through souls who pass for a lengthy or a brief period out of the mirror of life, as we in sleep out of the bodily life. And though it may fall upon a sleeping serpent, it falls principally upon straight paths. In so far as a man is like all other men, the inflow finds him upon the winding path and insofar as he is a saint or sage, upon the straight path. Section 16 The daemon, by using his mediatorial shades, brings man again and again to the place of choice, heightening temptation that the choice may be as final as possible, imposing his own lucidity upon events, leading his victim to whatever among works not impossible is the most difficult. He suffers with man as some firm-souled man suffers with the woman he but loves the better because she is extravagant and fickle. His descending power is neither the winding nor the straight line, but zigzag, illuminating the passive and active properties, the trees two sorts of fruit, it is the sudden lightning, for all his acts of power are instantaneous. We perceive in a pulsation of the artery, and after, slowly decline. Section 18 Only in rapid and subtle thought, 
or in faint accents heard in the quiet of the mind, can the thought of the Spirit come to us, but little changed. For a mind that grasps objects simultaneously, according to the degree of its liberation, does not think the same thought with the mind that sees objects one after another. The purpose of most religious teaching, of the insistence upon the submission to God's will above all, is to make certain of the passivity of the vehicle where it is most pure and most tenuous. When we are passive where the vehicle is coarse, we become mediumistic, and the spirits who mold themselves in that coarse vehicle can only rarely and with great difficulty speak their own thoughts and keep their own memory. They are subject to a kind of drunkenness, and are stupefied, old writers said, as if with honey, and readily mistake our memory for their own, and believe themselves whom and what we please. We bewilder and overmaster them, for once they are among the perceptions of successive objects, our reason, being but an instrument created and sharpened by those objects, is stronger than their intellect, and they can but repeat, with brief glimpses, from another state, our knowledge and our words. Section 19 A friend once dreamed that she saw many dragons climbing upon the steep side of a cliff and continually falling. Henry Moore thought that those who, after centuries of life, failed to find the rhythmic body and to pass into the condition of fire were born again. Edmund Spencer, who was among Moore's masters, affirmed that nativity without giving it a cause. Again returned being. They, in that garden, planted be again, and grow afresh, as they had never seen fleshly corruption, nor mortal pain. Some thousand years so don't they remain. And then of him are clad with other hue, or sent into the changeful world again, till thither they return where first they grew, so like a wheel around they run from old to new. Section 20 But certainly... It is always to the condition of fire, where emotion is not brought to any sudden stop, where there is neither wall nor gate that we would rise, and the mask plucked from the oak tree is but my imagination of rhythmic body. We may pray to that last condition by any name, so long as we do not pray to it as a thing or a thought, and most prayers call it man or woman or child. For mercy has a human heart, pity a human face. Within ourselves, reason and will, who are the man and woman, hold out toward a hidden altar a laughing or crying child. Section 21 When I remember that Shelley calls our minds mirrors of the fire for which all thirst, I cannot but ask the question all have asked. What or who has cracked the mirror? I begin to study the only self that I can know, myself, and to wind the thread upon the pern again. 
At certain moments, always unforeseen, I become happy. Most commonly, when at hazard, I have opened some book of verse. Sometimes it is my own verse, when, instead of discovering new technical flaws, I read with all the excitement of the first writing. Perhaps I am sitting in some crowded restaurant, the open book beside me, or closed, my excitement having overbrimmed the page. I look at the strangers near, as if I had known them all my life, and it seems strange that I cannot speak to them. Everything fills me with affection. I have no longer any fears or any needs. I do not even remember that this happy mood must come to an end. It seems as if the vehicle had suddenly grown pure and far extended and so luminous that the images from Anima Mundi embodied there and drunk with that sweetness would, like a country drunkard who has thrown a wisp into his own thatch, burn up time. It may be an hour before the mood passes, but latterly I seem to understand that I enter upon it the moment I cease to hate. I think the common condition of our life is hatred. I know that this is so with me. Irritation with public or private events or persons. There is no great matter in forgetfulness of servants or the delays of tradesmen, but how forgive the ill-breeding of Carlyle? or the rhetoric of Swinburne, or that woman who murmurs over the dinner-table the opinion of her daily paper. And only a week ago, last Sunday, I hated the spaniel who disturbed a partridge on her nest, a trout who took my bait and yet broke away unhooked. The books say that our happiness comes from the opposite of hate, but I am not certain, for we may love unhappily. And plainly, when I have closed a book too stirred to go on reading, and in those brief intense visions of sleep I have something about me that, though it makes me love, is more like innocence. I am in the place where the daemon is, but I do not think he is with me until I begin to make a new personality, selecting among those images, seeking always to satisfy a hunger grown out of conceit with daily diet. And yet, as I write the words, I select. I am full of uncertainty, not knowing when I am the finger, when the clay. Once, twenty years ago, I seemed to awake from sleep to find my body rigid, and to hear a strange voice speaking these words through my lips, as through lips of stone. We make an image of him who sleeps, and it is not he who sleeps, and we call it Emmanuel. Section 22 As I go up and down my stair, and pass the gilded, Moorish wedding chest where I keep my barbarous words, I wonder, will I take to them once more? For I am baffled by those voices that still speak as to Odysseus, but as the bats. Or now that I shall be in a little while be growing old, to some kind of simple piety, like that of an old woman. 
May 9th, 1917. Is anyone still listening? If so, thank you. I hope it was rewarding for you. Until the next episode, this is Frauder H saying, Hey. <laughs>